Well, welcome to the Gospel Forum podcast. My name is James, and I am sitting here with my dear friend, Nicholas Potts. Nick, how the heck are you doing? I'm doing all right today. How are you? Um, I am better than all right. I am adequate. I'm sorry. You know why I'm adequate? Because it's just you and me. And this is fun. No Dan, no Pilgrim, no one holding us accountable. It feels great. And it's like they say, Nick, wait, what what did they say? Oh, yes, he says, when the cats are away, the mice will... Stay? Party. Party, yes. party. So we're here to party. And uh, Nick, what are we talking about today? We are talking about uh, saying sorry. Saying sorry. Uh, that's actually not what I have in well, my it says notes. It says apologies here. Nick, you're acting ridiculous. Uh, it's apologetics we're talking about today. Same difference. Same difference. Nick, what is apologetics? So uh, apologetics is uh, – it comes from the Greek word uh, apologia, uh, which simply means to make a defense. Uh, so it's the defense of the Christian faith. The defense of the Christian faith. Uh, yeah, and we see that word used in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. It says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, defense apologia, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. But we are to do this with gentleness and respect. So here we see that to give an apologia is to make a defense for the Christian faith. The direct translation would be a reasoned defense. Yeah, and so the passage, um, you know, you see, you know, that we are not only suggested to make a defense. No, it does make it as a command. We are commanded as Christians to make a defense for the hope that is within us, the faith. Um, So all Christians everywhere are commanded to do apologetics. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty clear from the scriptures, passages like this, and we're going to talk about more as the podcast goes on. Um, but you know, within the uh, world of apologetics, there's different methods that people use. And there's actually three specific methods that we want to explain to you today and kind of talk through, talk about their strengths and their weaknesses. And those apologetic methods are the evidential method, the classical and the presuppositional. So, Nick, what is evidential apologetics? Sure. Evidential apologetics is um, basically just the apologetic methodology that tells um, it, the, what it looks like in practice is that you just hand out evidences to the unbeliever. Uh, the assumption there is that the unbeliever just lacks evidence uh, and that they don't necessarily argue that the, um, the evidences will cause belief rather they say that it just kind of gets rid of the obstacles in the way so the underlying foundation is that you give as much evidence as possible uh, and then they need to get over that little hump of faith okay so if i'm um, an evidentialist if that's my <laughs> apologetic method of choice yeah um the way that i'm gonna defend the faith to non-believers is by pointing to evidence, right? I'm going to appeal to evidence. So what kind of evidence would I would I use to defend the faith? Sure. I mean, there's tons of evidences to defend the faith. I mean, you have science um, 
from cosmology, astrophysics, all the way down to microbiology. So um, really what you're dealing with in the different methods is the framework that the evidences are used. So uh, popular evidentialists would be Josh McDowell, okay. uh, Lee Strobel, sure. Case for Creator, Case for Faith, Case, for, faith, case yeah. for Christ, Case for the Real Jesus, stuff like that. Um, so um, normally it's just you present the evidence uh, as if you're in a courtroom and you have the unbeliever um, who judges the evidence and you essentially conclude from the overwhelming evidence that God exists. Sure. And this is kind of known as the one-step approach. Let's Correct. cut to the chase. Let's let's look at the ev evidence, whether it's archaeology or it's biblical prophecy or the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to look at these things to prove to you that Jesus is God, that he lived, that he died, that he rose again, that Christianity is the true faith. Yes. So they're going to appeal just to evidences. And the second form of apologetics we see is classical apologetics. And I think kind of where evidential is the one step, classical apologetics is kind of the two-step method. Yeah. Uh, what the classical apologists will do is they'll use the evidence, those arguments, but first what they're going to do is they are going to appeal to reason. Right? They're going to try to uh, be rational in, in discussing how God exists. And what they'll do before they get to the specific evidences of, of Jesus and the Bible, they're going to try to prove just a general existence of God. And they're going to kind of stick with, with two things in that argument. Uh, Nick, you want to talk about what those two things are? Sure. Um, you have uh, the two arguments, which are uh, going to be the cosmological argument, and then the second one would be the teleological argument. The cosmological argument essentially is that uh, creation, all of creation generally uh, points to the fact that God exists. Now, uh, there's a popular classical apologist named William Lane Craig. And he developed what's, uh, well, he didn't really develop, but he's kind of popularized uh, what's called the Kalam cosmological argument, which essentially says that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Mm. Um, uh, the universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, this goes all the way back to uh, Aristotelian uh, philosophy or from Aristotle uh, that talks about the first cause or the unmoved mover. Um, again, popularized within the Christian realm uh, by Thomas Aquinas. Um, and then modern, um, modernly uh, by William Lane Craig. Um, so that kind of deals with, you know, uh, where did God come from? Uh, you know, because a lot of times the misnomer of the argument is, Everything uh, that exists has a cause. Well, if God exists, that means God had a cause. No, no, no. It's everything that begins to exist. Right. God did not begin. He is eternal. Uh, so that would be kind of the one of the things that deal with that. Yeah, so I, I think of a common question that has been asked, you know, by children, students, whatever. And the question is, you know, where did all, thing come, all things come from? And the answer is God. What do they usually ask after that? Where did God come from? Where did God come from? The cosmological argument says that 
God has no cause. Yes. He was the initial cause of all things. Yes. And if we just keep on tracing back, well, what caused this, what caused that? If we have this infinite regression of causes, then we can never actually exist in the time we are right now. So because things exist, that's proof that things had a cause. Correct. And because we can't just keep on tracing back forever and ever, the argument is that the first thing that was caused must have been caused by something that was uncaused and that us uncaused thing would have been God. Yeah. And that kind of goes into, you know, you know, math theory. Uh, is there a thing as an actual infinite? Well, if you're actually counting to infinity, well, then you are going nowhere, really, because you can't start anywhere. If it's an actual infinity, there's no actual starting point, nor any actual ending point. So there's no such thing as an actual infinity. Uh, so if there's no such thing as an actual infinity, there must be a starting point, because if, there, um, if anything exists at all, it must have had a starting point. All right, cool. So that's kind of the first argument they start with. What's the second argument that the classical apologists will start with? So the teleological argument comes from the Greek word telos, which is uh, really kind of deals with design. Okay. So uh, it kind of looks at the intricacies of creation. So it's not uh, so at, whereas the cosmological argument deals with creation in a general sense, um, the teleological uh, almost look as if uh, like all of these arguments start with the widest part of a funnel. So cosmological is just general. Teleological argument kind of goes down just a little bit, makes it a little bit more specific within the creation. So the design aspect. Okay, so now we're kind of talking about the argument for intelligent design. Intelligent design, uh, you see it uh, you know, with uh, the book and documentary called The Privileged Planet. So not only our life, but our planet uh, itself is privileged because if it was a little bit closer to the sun, we'd burn up. If it was a little too far, we'd freeze. Uh, if the earth was not on a 23 and a half degree uh, axis tilt, you know, we uh, the uh, earth cannot have the seasons uh, yeah. in a way that sustains life. So it's the fine-tuning argument. Yes. Right? We look at the world around us, and we see design. We see fine-tuning. And, and yeah. it would be ridiculous to think these things happen on accident. And there's the old argument known as the watchmaker argument, where yeah. if you were to walk into just some open field, some abandoned open field, and in the center of that field you found a watch, you would never just pick that up and think it was some random formation that just came out of nowhere. right? You'd pick it up, and you know that this watch has a designer. Right? Yeah. You know there was a watchmaker for this. And if we can identify those things with, with that which is made by human hands, we should be able to look at the world around us and see design and creation and know that there's a designer and a creator. Yeah. So that's the second one they focus on. So first they're going to rationalize with those two arguments. And then what they're going to do is segue more into the specific nitty-gritty uh, yeah. evidential arguments within the text of Scripture, whether it's yeah. looking at uh, fulfilled prophecies, yeah. um, looking yes. at miracles, uh, the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, and sometimes they'll have one more step uh, there, which is like the moral argument, uh, just to show that God's not a deist. Sure. Um, so that God is still... Um, acting with providence within creation so uh so objective morality demonstrates that there is an objective moral law giver sure so then unlike the evidential approach this is more like two-step first yeah. let's let's be rational 
and then let's look at the so evidence. One step, two step. One step, two step. <laughs> so uh, basically, the foundations you have are, I mean, they're as old as, you know, philosophy itself is with the evidential argument you have the foundation of what's called empiricism that is our knowledge uh kind of stems with the things that we experience that's why you just give out evidences because the moment you can see hear touch you know uh these facts then your knowledge of god increases and then with the classical is the foundation of rationalism. That is your reason is the uh, the ultimate starting point in your thoughts and understandings. Okay. So for the evidentialists, they're defending the Christian faith. They're defending the ex- existence of God. They're going to point to evidences, right? Sure. That's going to be their starting point. Sure. The classical apologist, their starting point is going to be reason. So we come to the third method of apologetics we're talking about today which is the presuppositional method. Yeah. Yeah, so the presuppositional method of apologetics uh, deals first with uh, the idea that we are defending the Christian faith. We're not defending a, a generic deity. So one of the criticisms that presuppositionalists have against the classicalists uh, is that the classical apologetic method defends a generic deity. Now classicalists will retort and say no we have a cumulative case uh, that we start with a generic deity then we get to a designing generic deity then we get to the moral argument that denies deism so it's a a uh, more it still general theism sure. but he's uh, providentially involved and then uh specifically christianity yeah. it's very systematic yeah absolutely yeah. uh but the presuppositionalist says that no you don't start there you start with christianity is uh the faith you defend uh they would take passages such as you read earlier first uh peter three fifteen, uh where it does actually command all believers to Uh, defend the faith but what it starts with is set christ apart as lord in your heart Mm. then you give a defense sure um then you know we can take a look at romans one in just a minute but uh just generically uh what presuppositionalism says is that you presuppose uh that christianity is true and you argue from that foundation so let me ask you a question nick um one that many have asked me how would a presuppositionalist go about defending the existence of God? Well, uh, I think one of the best, uh, it's slightly cheeky, but I, I still think it's true, is Genesis 1.1 uh, says, um, in the beginning, God created. So there's really no defense for God's existence uh, other than, no, it just says God exists. And uh, some presuppositionalists actually say Genesis 1 1 is actually the oldest presuppositionalist uh, uh, apologetic argument. Um, but uh, there's a little bit more of a positive case. Uh, it's presuppositionalists don't ever, they, they never say uh, that you should never defend the existence of God. Um, that's actually kind of a, um, a caricature of presuppositionalism. What presuppositionalists actually say is that the unbeliever has no right 
uh, to judge whether if God exists or not. They have no right if God is good or not. They cannot make judgment pronouncements of God in any way because they stand condemned. God does not. Yeah, and I think that's one of the big differences between the presuppositional approach and, and the other two yeah. is kind of with the evidential and the classical approach, what you're doing is you're talking to the unbeliever and you're making a case for God. You're defending God as, as if the person you're talking to is the judge. But yeah. biblically, God is the one who is judged. And like you said, the, the non-believer I'm talking to, they're the ones who stand condemned. Yeah. So it, it's... They got it completely backwards. God is the judge. The unbeliever is not the judge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if we could put this in a, a picturesque understanding, the evidentialist and the classicalist uh, will say that you and God are the defense attorneys um, and um, the unbeliever is um, the judge jury and prosecutor uh whereas the presuppositionalist actually says that the unbeliever is the defendant uh and you are the prosecutor and god is the judge that presides over that courtroom yeah that's kind of like what i said but better <laughs> yeah that's normally the case yeah well um <laughs> so nick full transparency uh, you would subscribe to presuppositional apologetics. Now, let me ask you, what in the scriptures would would convince you of this position? Well, um, you know, as you know, I stated earlier, First Peter three fifteen uh, one commands us, but it starts again with set Christ apart as Lord. Uh, it doesn't say start from a neutral position. Uh, that I can start somewhere between Christ is Lord and Christ is not. Um, assume some sort of reality and allow the unbeliever to meet me in that reality. Because here's the thing. The unbeliever is an enemy of God. They hate God, according to the scriptures. They're not going to uh, meet you in a neutral position if the neutral position existed in the first place. Sure, because they're coming to the table with a presupposition themselves. Exactly. Uh, their presupposition is God does not exist. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, people will say, you know, well, that's circular reasoning. You start with God exists, therefore conclude God exists. Well, I just turn that around and say, well, the unbeliever, when they examine the evidence, they start with God doesn't exist, therefore there's no evidence. Since there's no evidence that God exists, therefore God doesn't exist. Yeah. So you're arguing in a circle there as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then I would just push that further and say, uh, the very fact that you can examine evidence shows that God exists. Uh, whereas if you start, uh, if you force the unbeliever to be consistent, no matter what their denomination of unbelief is, whether if it's um, Islam uh, or uh, atheism, because presuppositional apologetics is not just a tool uh, that you can carry around just like classicalism or evidentialism. Uh, but you can do this to any subscription of unbelief. Um, so, um, you know, again, starting with Christ as Lord, then you defend the faith. But I'd also go to uh, Romans chapter 1. Uh, Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, says, For the wrath of God is revealed uh, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. 
for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So just breaking that passage down real quick, it says uh, the wrath of God is revealed. It's not, well, it, it's going to be revealed as if judgment is only a future event. Um, secondly, it's revealed against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. Uh, but it finishes with who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So what this is saying is that the unbeliever actually knows God exists. So in a sense, there's really no such thing as an agnostic nor atheist. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone knows God exists. Uh, rather, they are suppressing the fact that they know God exists. Um, well, how do they do that? It says what can be known about God is plain to them. Well, right there, it says that they know God exists. Everything that can be known about God is plain to them. But more than that, Paul pushes it over the edge just a bit more. And he says, because God has shown it to them. It's not, uh, they know everything because they observe it. No, God has shown it. And more than that, it says it was clearly perceived, not only that God made it plain to them, but they understood it clearly. Yeah, that's all really good stuff. And, you know, as a presuppositionalist, I'm not against evidence. I'm not against the arguments of the evidentialist or the classical apologist. My concern is the initial approach. Because yeah. for me as a Christian, I, I look at those arguments, the resurrection of Christ, you know, historical, archaeological, uh, whatever it may be, and I'm very encouraged. My, my yeah. faith is strengthened. Yeah. What we have to realize is we will never talk to a person who does not believe in God, Correct. whether they admit it or not. As Romans 1 passage says, God has made his invisible attributes clearly seen in the things that have been made. So yeah. think of Psalm 19, 1 and 2 really quick. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. God's existence is clearly seen in the things that have been made. So we don't need to point to these things to try to prove his existence. Right? We find we find great comfort in looking at these things and seeing his existence and the evidence. But his creation does it by itself. Yeah. Does it by itself. Uh, so I, I think what we need to get to is the biblical method of apologetics. Yeah. I would say it's presuppositionalism. I think you would agree. Yeah. We don't hate our brothers who are classical or evidential. No. But I think there's a deeper issue with yeah. a person that I'm speaking to. I don't think it's so much they don't believe in God. Yeah. I don't think they're seeking for the truth. I, I think it has to do with their nature. First yeah. Corinthians two fourteen says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The person I'm speaking to, the unbeliever, as you said, they hate God. Yeah. They hate God. They don't understand the things of the Spirit because they are spiritually dead. Yeah. So it doesn't matter how much you try to argue with a dead corpse. It doesn't matter what evidences you point to to a dead corpse. Something else has to take place. So, so Nick, how should we approach the unbeliever? Well, the way the Bible says and describes the unbeliever. Uh, they are haters of God, dead in their sins, sons of disobedience. Um, so we should not take them as uh, morally neutral people that are seeking God, whereas 
Romans 3 actually is very clear. No one seeks God. They may seek the benefits that come from God, such as uh, peace and love and acceptance, but they want all those things without God. Uh, it's like, uh, uh, I don't know if you saw the closing episode to The Good Place. Um, it, it's funny because, you know, a lot of Christians, you know, really push back against that uh, because it showed the good place without God. But I think that's actually a good Christian apologetic because what was the final episode? Well, the good place without good people and good things is meaningless. So you just jump out of existence. Well, I agree. The good place without Christ is meaningless. Heaven without Jesus is meaningless. It's worthless. It's nothing. Um, and so honestly, I would say that is the image of God actually popping through. Uh, in that moment, uh, ironically, even though they're trying to suppress it, um, a popular presuppositionalist, uh, his name was Cornelius Van Til, actually used the argument that uh, it's like trying to hold a beach ball underwater. Uh, every now and then it'll pop up. Uh, and that's exactly what happens with the unbeliever, whether if they, um, they try to subscribe to reason, logic, science, morality. All of those things are demonstrations that God exists because God is the foundation to all those things. Um, so how do we come to them? What is the point of contact uh, with them? How do we communicate that to them? Uh, we demonstrate that you know they're actually suppressing the truth. But if you look at the passage that I just read uh, in Romans chapter 1, it doesn't start in verse 18. It obviously starts in verse you know, 1. But if you read just a couple verses before that, starting in verse 16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then it goes on to say, for the wrath of God. So how do we come to the unbeliever? Uh, one, we do demonstrate their foolishness, but we come at them with the gospel because it is the gospel that changes their entire foundation of which they examine those evidences. Yeah, that, that's, I mean, that's really great stuff. And I think we see... Lots of arguments for presuppositional apologetics in the book of Romans. Yeah. Uh, you go to Romans chapter 10 and talking of these people, right? How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not or never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So right here, the unbeliever, they need the gospel. They are dead in their sin. Could God bring someone to faith through an evidential argument? Amen. Of course. Could he through a classical argument? Amen. Of course. But the thing is, Nick, if you're talking to someone who's spiritually dead, it doesn't matter what kind of evidence you bring to them. Apart from the grace and the work of Christ, they will reject it. Yeah. You could show them a video of Jesus himself raising from the dead. And yeah. what would they say? Huh, weird things happen. Or that's CGI. Yeah. Right? So the thing is, what needs to happen is their hearts need to be regenerated so that they can believe in Jesus Christ and the work he's done. And that only comes from sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, because that is the power to salvation. Amen. Amen. So I think that's a decent, or hopefully it's a decent overview of different apologetic methods. Maybe in the future we can dive deeper into each one. Uh, but, you know, as we close, I think maybe uh, we should do a book it. 
And Nick, uh, we didn't plan this beforehand, but maybe what we can do for this week's book it is give a book recommendation for each one of these methods of apologetics, one for the evidential, one for the classical, and one for the presuppositional. So what would you recommend for a book that uh, accurately describes what evidential apologetics is? Sure. I'll actually give uh, something a little bit better. It actually includes all of them. There is a four views book uh, on the methods of apologetics. Uh, so it's uh, various views. They uh, People that subscribe to those views, uh, they'll state what their view is, and they'll have responses from people with the other views to say why they think that view is incorrect or whatever. So it's uh, four or five views on apologetics. All right. That's pretty good. Then I guess there's no other books needed. Uh, <laughs> who, who is that by? Where could the listeners find that book? Uh, I think Zondervan puts it out. Um, I can't remember. Uh, but, you know, multiple authors, uh, William Lane Craig, uh, I think John Frame does the presuppositional view. Um, I'd, I'd have to look at, you know, the other authors. Okay. Well, maybe we can find out what this book is called see if it actually exists and if it does we can uh put the link in the description uh well with all that being said i I think that's our time nick i think that is our time so this has been another episode of the gospel forum and until next time keep on reforming